You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 153. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. And hey, leave us a review if you can. We'd appreciate it. Yeah, and we got a website, codingblocks.net. You can find show notes, examples, discussion, and a whole lot more. And you can send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net. And you can follow us on Twitter at CodingBlocks, or you can head to www.CodingBlocks.net and find all our social links there at the top of the page. With that, my name is Alan Underwood. I'm Joe Zach. <laughs> yeah, I, was, I thought it was like a late you know, response there, like it was like a, uh, you know, I tell you a UDP joke, but you might not get it kind of thing. Oh, right. Um, oh, yep. Yep, now I'm Michael never- Outlaw. <laughs> with the with the on-time response. Yes. This episode is sponsored by Datadog, the cloud-scale monitoring and analytics platform for end-to-end visibility into modern applications, and DataStacks, the open multi-cloud stack for modern data apps built on open-source Apache Cassandra. All right, I'll do the intro here. So we are coming around in this episode basically because we've all been crazy busy and we have things to talk about, but we didn't have time to research a ton. So we're going to join back around the water cooler and talk about things that are on our minds in the development world. And with that, before we get into <laughs> that, like, <laughs> this is going to be a rant, a rant session. Like, so what's up with Bob? Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't promise a rant. I can't not promise a rant. <laughs> You'll have to stick around to find out. It's been it's been about a month of of crazy. So, um, at any rate, before we jump into our water cooler topics that we have, we like to first thank those that leave us a review. So, I think uh, Mike, you got this. Oh sure. Uh, all right. So in on iTunes, we had uh, Peter B. Sad face jackafus and one t underscore okay <laughs> i, I mean thought, I, I, that's assumed <laughs> but the underscores is the wrong place it should have been one underscore t i don't know it was hanging off the end how do you know maybe it was a member variable it should have been underscore one t oh that's true that's true although some people yeah. hate you know doing variable names like that true Well, thank you for leaving those reviews. Those all three were amazing. So really appreciate it. So I I could have put this at the tips of the week, but you know, some people aren't going to hang around for that. (laughs) And and so I wanted to put this up front because it might help some people out. So I recently had my wife's computer just started blue screening like crazy. And the errors that were showing up made it look like it was a problem with the drive. So as you do, you know, I'm not just going to get a drive. If I got to tear all of it open, then I'm going to upgrade. Right? So I got a motherboard, CPU, drive, all that garbage. Get everything in there, and it's still blue screening. And I'm like, man. And my wife tells me, well, the video card was doing something weird. Like the screen was glitching and stuff. I was like, oh, man. All right, so I'm going to try and get a video card. You can't buy video cards right now. I don't know if you've looked. They're all out, right? Like Bitcoin mining or crypto mining plus the pandemic, they're wiped out. At any rate, I did have a video card laying around, stuck it in there, was still getting the blue screen. It was the RAM. So 
there's a program, I'll have a link in the show notes here, called Memtest86. It's super popular. It's real easy to get running with. You download the program, you say install it on a USB, then you boot to the USB. This thing, after just a couple minutes, had thousands of memory errors, right? And I was like, okay, that looks like that might be the problem. So ordered new RAM, got it, went ahead and ran the Memtest86 on it too, just to make sure I wasn't going to be going into the same problem, right? Everything went perfect. So just what I'm calling out here is a lot of times, and this happened with my machine as well years ago, test your memory. If you start getting sudden blue screens for no apparent reason, it might be that you got an update in your OS that's now touching memory locations on those memory sticks that it never used before. There could be all sorts of reasons that you start getting it, but check your RAM. It takes probably an hour or two to run this thing. Just do it. And then at least you can sleep peacefully and then know that it's probably a USB driver or something. So, um, Just uh, one point of clarification there, though. I would assume that in today's age of operating systems with, uh, uh, what's it called, the the memory address randomization layout, Mm -hmm. uh, there's a name for it, I can't remember. But yeah, your operating system, regardless of the update, if it's a modern operating system, is randomly using all of it, I would bet. I, you would think, but it's like I said, it was really weird. It was like after a Windows update or something, all of a sudden she started getting blue screens. Like, did you move the machine numbers. at all? Just curious. <laughs> Had it been recently, like it had been jostled. <laughs> Hi, and thank you for calling Coding Box Technical Support. Uh, right? Yeah, have you have you tried turning it off and on? Right. Have you oh, recently man. moved the computer? <laughs> So frustrating, dude. But yeah, I mean, honestly, it's worth trying. So uh, do that. And then Joe Zach, I think you got something in here, or maybe that's you outlaw. I don't know. No, I just want to mention uh, we got some really great uh, uh, comments on the last episode, which was about uh, Python. So uh, about virtual environments. <laughs> there was some of that, some of that. So we got some really good feedback from people that uh, spend their you know all their uh, a lot of the time with Python. So it was really good. Just want to encourage you to check out those comments. Uh, and we love any feedback. So you know if you uh, if we say something that frustrates you and drives you nuts, and you want to set the record straight, then uh, awesome. That's a great place to do it. Uh, if you want to just tell us uh, you know we're awesome, then uh, you know hey, I'll take that too. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's funny. That's usually when we do get the comments when we say something, and people are like, "No, they're wrong." My people, my people. <laughs> that's right, they're wrong. And, yeah, and that's that's totally fine. I mean, it's it's good for discussion. And honestly, usually we learn something, and so does everybody else, right? So, yes, totally, totally open to that. This is a real time, uh, conversational based test driven development where like we just say some stuff and we're testing to see if you're listening, <laughs> right? Yeah, with no revisions, right? And I can't go back and fix anything. Um, how many times has it been something where you're like, oh, I meant to say that, but now it's like 10 minutes later. Or, oh, this is how I should have explained it or whatever. And just, Oh, dude. Hey, look, Joe Zach and I know for sure because we edit videos and do stuff <laughs> like that. Man, you could second guess yourself to death editing a video. Like you could take a 15-minute clip that you plan on publishing and it could take you 10 hours to do. So. Um, cause you're always like, Oh, I should have added this. I should have revised that. And then eventually you're like, I don't care. Ship it. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's uh, outlaw commented on the audio quality on my Kinesis keyboard review. He's like, Hey man, did you? And I was like, dude, shut up. I don't want to stop it. <laughs> the way you're saying that though, it makes, I, I, 
you're not really painting me in the best light there, man. I no, come no. across as a jerk in this story. Oh, no, no. Not, not a jerk. Outlaw was just like, yo. You, I was like, you, yo, man, you, what's up with that audio? That's crap. Have you heard you it? Use the, I thought you used noise reduction. I was like, dude. <laughs> it's one of those things that after you've been at it for like eight hours, you're like, I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> I always get a lot of hiss when I record uh, this microphone on Windows. I The recorder comes out great, I think, but uh, I give up. Now, mine was I was trying to tweak it to be some sort of like studio style, and mm-hmm. then and then I jacked up the audio, and I was like, oh, there's no going back now. So, yeah, done. Oh, uh, yeah, whatever. That's what happens when you experiment. So, at any rate, now. Did you try to noise reduce? No, just kidding. Hey, <laughs> <All right>. hey. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Uh, so getting into this one, one of the topics that I don't know, man, like I, I, I'm just, I, I really want to open this up for conversation because I have known developers that are like C sharp or die, right? Like, or, or Java or die or, or I had a good friend. Like, you're not gonna believe this one. Wait for it. But a, a good friend of mine, love him to death, Pearl or die. Now yeah. that was back then, not today. You know, in fairness, right. right? But you know, yeah. And and so I wanted to open this up for conversation because, it, personally, I will work in whatever language makes sense. Right? Like, if if an application is written fully in Go, I'm going to do it in Go. Right? Like, if I've got to add a library to it, I'm not going to try and figure out some sort of do some sort of way to do like a calm wrapper. I'm gonna be like, well, I guess I'm gonna dip my feet into Go, right? If if something's written in Python, like I just recently did, okay, I'm gonna pick up Python. I originally went down the 3.9 route, and then they're like, well, our app is in 2.7. I said, okay, I will go back to 2.7. Whatever, right? Like I just don't care. I'm gonna use whatever language makes the most sense, but I do get it. If you say, hey, I'm a Java developer, I'm going to know everything there is to know about enterprise Java beans. I'm going to know everything about every library, every framework. I'm going to know everything about Spring, Spring, uh, Spring Boot, everything, right? Like, I'm going to know it all. There's value in that, too. So I'm curious what you guys' take on this is. Like, what... How do you feel about it? Do you, do you feel like people should be you know, like a hero, a champion of their language, or should they be a champion of being a developer for, for whatever it is that needs to be done? Do I raise my hand? Do I, okay. is it, no. If you raise your hand, you get kicked off the podcast. <laughs> uh, <laughs> wow. That got dark quick. <laughs> um, so, so uh, my opinion on this topic and you know, I, I've shared this, I think I've shared it on this show before and I've definitely shared it with friends in the past though. It was like, you know, uh, I, I, I personally consider myself a software developer, not a C sharp developer, for example, or Python or Kotlin or insert language here. Um, and so by that, what I mean is that, you know, whatever the language is that is needed to solve the problem, then that's, that's what I'm going to, to use. Right. And I mean, and I think even between the three of us, you know, like there's this whole, you know, the, the whole full stack, you know, quote, air quote, full stack term, right? Like we're already forced to not think in a single language anyways, because, you know, 
if, if we get tasked with doing anything web app related, like, okay, there's some HTML, there's some JavaScript, there's some CSS. Oh my gosh, maybe it's SAS. Uh, then you have whatever your backend language is. It's going to be uh, Java or Kotlin or Perl or sorry, Python or C sharp or, you know, whatever. And then, oh my gosh, I got to go query a database. So it's going to be T SQL. It's going to be PL SQL. It's going to be whatever, some other thing. Right. So like, I don't even think that the three of us could even say that we would be like champion one language. That's not even a thing for us. Right. I don't know, Joe. So uh, my answer here is to just do what feels good to you. I think uh, there's a lot of value in going really deep on something we've talked about, T-shaped developers. And and uh, I think, you know, that's great. If you really want to do that, there's a lot of value to that, to being like, a, you know, an expert. Uh, the thing you have to be careful with is like so those platforms die. So you can't get too attached to any one technology. Sometimes like something just comes along and just knocks it down. And then, you know, it can be hard to kind of pivot your career, especially if you've done some branding or like a website or a channel or something around that technology. And that can be uh, a big loss. Like I so, uh, you know, I always say, thing. yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 oh, Silverlight, Flash, you know, uh, all, Coding all, all sorts of Silverlight. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> you know, at the time we thought we'd never, would never go away. But uh, so, yeah, I always think uh, be careful of that. But aside from that, like I was just uh, thinking like this week, I've worked in, and you know, I don't want, I don't want to sound like a, uh, I don't know, like a name dropper or something, but I, like I legitimately, I've worked in JavaScript, Kotlin, uh, Python, PowerShell, Bash, did a lot with YAML. Uh, I'd worked in Mongo a little bit. I did some stuff with Elasticsearch, SQL Server. Like that's, just, and it's, it's not even the end of the week. You know, like I bounce around a lot, and I think that there's room in the world for people that bounce around a lot. And it's, it is kind of scary though, because I can go on a stream and be like, oh, I'm going to make something new in Python. And even though I've been working with Python uh, on and off for several months now, I'm like, wait, is it underscore underscore knit equals main? I forget. Let me just Google it. There's like real basic things I just don't have that muscle memory for. And that's kind of scary. Like if I, if I go to start a new Kotlin project, like setting a blog for Jay, setting up this or that, like those things are things that I'm like really missing in my tool belt. Whereas someone who's been working in Java or Kotlin or something for years, they've probably set up new projects a hundred times. And so that's nothing to them. I know how to maintain these apps. I can bring along everything I know about software engineering, like abstractions and, you know, good ways to do things and, you know, debugging and whatever, all that stuff transfers really well. But there's things about individual languages that you're just going to hurt on if you bounce around a lot like that. And I feel that pain, you know, all the time. It's like embarrassing when I don't know, like, does Python have a switch statement? I forget. I've only been working with it for, you know, months or uh, you know, Kotlin, I'm like, ah, what's, how do I do the Kotlin ternary stuff? I've only been working with it for years now and that's ridiculous, but I know it's there. I know there's something similar. And so I, you know, that's what feels good to me. I've, uh, I think everyone kind of has a role to, in, in kind of managing your career and the way that you move. And I think that uh, when things come up at work, you have a choice to say like, Hey, let me grab that or let me take a look or that's someone else's thing. They should, you know, I'm not going to be effective at that. So someone else should do it. And uh, I, it seems like some people kind of gravitate towards one or the other. So as far as I can tell, the world takes all types. And so that's my answer is just do what feels good. I like Don't that. brand around it. I, I do have a question, though, because you hit on something that I think is really interesting. When you stay deep in a single in a single language like like we have for C Sharp in the past, right? It's like you said, you know how to do certain things. You know that you're going to set up Sarah log or log for net. You know that if you're going to do dependency injection, there's a handful of things there. 
you get a chance to learn and see all the bits that exist around a language. So you kind of know what's out there. Do you think there's benefit in staying deep in something, at least for some period of time, just so that you're aware of that? Like you said, like you've built up that muscle in C sharp. And so when you go over to Python, you know, Hey, there's probably a logging, you know, hook for this language. There's probably a DI hook for this language. So is there value in sticking with something for a while just so that you learn how to be a better software developer before you start jumping from platform to platform? I remember uh, being a cold fusion developer and kind of having uh, a lot of habits that I kind of grown up with as a, a developer because I had kind of grown up on that platform. And so the ways I interacted with databases and everything were kind of very much grown out of the patterns that they had. And it wasn't until I started like looking at like languages like C Sharp and Ruby on Rails and stuff, and I started seeing like ORMs and things that did things in a different way. That even when going back to Cold Fusion, it changed how I thought about it and changed how I did things. And uh, I think for the better, uh, you know, hopefully. So I, I definitely think there's something to kind of changing your perspective in order to learn new patterns because you can get kind of set in your ways if you're doing something for years, and there's a definite danger, and uh, you maybe you'll never know that there's a better way to do things because you're so used to just you know, typing in the stuff that comes with the muscle memory. There, Yeah, there is something both uh, refreshing and frustrating about it. I mean, like, I, I think that a lot of what you said, Jay-Z, like when, when you were talking a moment ago about uh, like forgetting little things in language, I was like, oh my God, I'm not the only one. <laughs> like, no, you're not. I, I'm so bad about that. Like, you know, if you ask me to spin up a, a brand new, uh, you know, project in a particular language, I might like, wait. If it's not C sharp, hold on. Uh, what? You like? I like. There are little things that I'll forget, and I have to like go and I'll have to go and check. You know, like, hey, I want to pass back multiple values because you know Alan loves it when I do that. How would I do that? You know, like whatever. Um. So so the, the, there's definitely value in going deep if you, if you want. Now, you know. So so from the individual perspective, totally agree. Do what you want to do, and and you know whatever. Whatever you enjoy, whatever makes you happy, that's ultimately what's going to matter the most. And if 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 staying in one particular language or bouncing around all of them is what feels right, then fine. And you know what? You're probably going to change your mind during the course of your career a couple times anyway. So, you know, whatever. You know, right now you might be focused in on one and eventually you'll start bouncing around and then you might get tired of that and come, go back to just focusing on one. But from a company perspective, we've also talked about it from their point of view too, where like even in the last episode – um, episode, uh, what was it? 152 about virtual environments. The, uh, see what I did oh, there? Let's go. <laughs> uh, you know, Google, I, I think it was, it was like uh, <laughs> Python crap. where we can and C, uh, or C plus plus where we must, right? Like, you know, they had a preference and we've seen like, um, take Amazon, for example, where like if they were coming out with a new service, all the libraries for that new service were Java first. Like they were, they were heavily Java focused and you know, I mean, you could only imagine that uh, anything coming out of Microsoft is probably going to support Kotlin first and then C sharp. Oh wait, so get that backwards. So here's a follow-up question for you guys. I don't know that we've ever even talked about this, you know, in the surveys and stuff that we've seen about favorite languages, right? Like I want to say rust was up there at the top or whatever. Has there, has there ever been a language that frustrated you 
or or language objective C. Okay, so here here's my question, and I think that you might be able to more fully answer that. Is it the language itself that frustrates you, or is it the tooling and the ecosystem around that language that frustrates you? Because for me personally, while I don't love Java because it's so verbose, the language doesn't frustrate me. C Sharp doesn't frustrate me. JavaScript, none of them frustrate me. Like a language is a language. It's the tooling and the ecosystem that have always bugged me. Yeah, I mean, like I, I was you know, partly joking about objective C when I, when, when I said it, the reason why it came to mind though, was that it was, there were parts, there were things about the syntax that were so different to me. They were like, just so foreign looking like, you know, compared to like any other language, like uh, you look at, you look at C sharp or Java and depending on like how much context I might give you, you might not be able to tell what the language is. Right. Similarly, like, you know, if, if I gave you, uh, well, no, I was going to say Java and Python, but you, you definitely be able to tell the difference. But I mean, even with some, some JavaScript though, you wouldn't be able to some, some JavaScript, depending on like how, how well, uh, you know, you know, depending on your linting style, like you might not be able to tell it from, a a um, well, I guess for the, if you're using let's, you might be able to see it, but you know what I'm saying? Like the point is, is that like a lot of those languages, they all are kind of similar, but there was just some parts of objective C that were so different to me that like, it just was like every, it just always felt weird. Now, granted, like it's been over a decade since I did anything with objective C and to your point about the tooling, definitely a thousand percent. The tooling was awful, you know, back in like the, you know, 2008, 2009, 2007, like that kind of time frame for Xcode, you know, trying to, trying to step through the debugger and even see the current value of a variable. And it's like, no, you want to do that. You got to like print it out to a, a thing. <laughs> like, you're like, this is the most basic of things that I expect from my, from my IDE. And, and I can't see this like what? Right. I mean, the, the one that springs to mind for me, that I might've had frustration with was C++, but that's because you have so much control over everything that if you screw something up, you know, you can, you can easily shoot yourself in the foot, but that it wasn't ever a problem with the language. It was just the fact that you had to know that if you're doing memory pointers and that kind of stuff, you just had to know about it. Right. So I don't know that. I don't know. What about you, Jay-Z? Any language that ever just really bothered you or was it the tooling and, and environment ecosystem, the package management, whatever? I know. Honestly, the only language that like really, I kept feeling I should like, but just kept irritating me was Python. <laughs> <laughs> and we talked about that, you know, in depth last episode. And, and don't get me wrong. I like Python. I'm, you know, I've spent my leisure time learning Python better and, you know, whatever. Uh, but uh, there's things about the language, just like the, uh, you know, the way you use like the length function and pass in a variable rather than object dot length or whatever, just there's some standards and some things that were done that just like drive me up a wall because it's different than every other language that I use frequently. And I'm constantly doing the wrong thing, which is just frustrating because it, it feels, I think it's one of those things where it feels so good that the things that trip me up feel terrible. It's just like mm. frustrating. So yeah, Python definitely frustrates me, but you know, that's not a knock on Python. Um, you know, I frustrate me too, whatever. 
That's interesting. I didn't realize that you were frustrated with Python. I, I don't think I got that takeaway from last episode. So that's that's interesting. Yep. Yep. No. Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, that was uh that was my my first water cooler topic. What, what do I we mean, got up next? Yeah, I, I do oh. want to say that like at least with like Xcode in recent years, it definitely got a lot better. You know, so I, I would imagine now that like you know. Swift, especially, I, I would imagine would be a much like a pleasure to 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 write in, especially compared I've heard to the, it is. You know, yeah. fifteen years ago of Objective C, you know. I mean, tool, tooling can make or break anything, right? Like straight up. You know how? Um, you, you, like, there's questions like this that always pop up, right? Like, which language is best, right? Uh, a C or a C plus plus or a Python or a Java, right? Like. You know, everybody's always got like, oh my God, you know, but you know, the answer, the answer is very simple. If you're writing an operating system, you see, if you're writing a complex application where execution speed is extremely important, you see plus plus. If time to market is key, but execution speed is not important, use Python. And if your boss told you do it in Java or you're fired, do it in Java and then look for a better workplace. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and the comments can be left at slash whatever. So, well, that know. joke came from Arlene. So ping her. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Send that to Slack. <laughs> As I throw Arlene under the bus. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh man. Yeah. You know, I will say like, you know, as far as Java goes, there are, there are a lot of tools that like you just, you're going to learn Java. If you're going to deal with like any Apache project, pretty much like, you're going to learn about some Java concepts, like how they do their logging, how the JVM works, you know, heap, all that stuff. Like it's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's interesting too, because the whole, like, uh, this, the single language or, or pick one or, you know, choose one. A lot of times it might be driven by, I'm using Apache, um, Kafka. Well, mm. everything's in Java. You know, do you really want to blaze that trail to go create something that doesn't exist in your favorite language? Maybe you do, but maybe if you want to go the easy road and, and, you know, learn off the people that have gone before you, you're probably going to go with Java, right? Like it's, that drives a lot of my decisions in terms of what I'm using. So there's certain kind of categories that you should like. And, you know, depending on where you want to go with your career, you would choose to hit or not. Like, uh, it's kind of like everyone should probably know JavaScript or like, you you know, it's going to be hard to avoid JavaScript completely unless you're like a backend embedded developer or something just, and that's all you ever want to do. But if you want to do backend embedded stuff, then you're looking at, uh, having to know either C++ or Go or Rust. And if you're looking at doing like, um, enterprise development, uh, backend services type stuff, like you're going to learn Java or C++ or, I'm sorry, sorry, uh, C Sharp. If you're going to do data science, like you're looking at Python or R. So it's kind of like picking, you know, the technologies is like, hey, I'm, I want to do front end and data science. Be like, well, here are your choices. You know, uh, you can learn all of them or you can kind of pick one from each category and really specialize in it depending on where you want to go. Yeah. That's a good point. Speaking of where you want to go, uh, who is hiring remotely now? Uh, I kind of had the idea to look up. Uh, I heard a lot, um, I, I've been hearing a lot of people who've been switching jobs uh, in the last year or so, uh, and a lot of them have been to really big companies that wouldn't have, they wouldn't have been able to switch to 
uh, two years ago, even because those companies didn't have remote hiring policies and start, or, you know, if they did, it was an exception. And so I went and looked up uh, and tried to find a list of prestigious companies that have uh, recently opened the floodgates to remote workers. And I threw a couple of the companies that have always been remote, just that I thought were kind of notable. And uh, let me check Twitter because I put this out on Twitter too, to see if anyone had anything that I missed. But uh, in the show notes, we are going to have links to every company here that uh, we're mentioning. And so if you want to do some browsing, just look around a little bit and uh, we've got uh, some stuff aggregated for you here. And you probably should not do this on your work computer. <laughs> I was going to say, now we, now you can't visit codingblocks.net on your work computer because you That's might get right. uh, you know, Just don't click the links. links. Don't click the links. Yeah. For, for those that don't know, if you're new to the industry, uh, all three of us do security software for a living, and, and it scans stuff like this. So if you click links like this at work and, and your work has a policy set up to look for links like this, you might be noteworthy in the IT department. You're going to get flagged on every one of them right now. <laughs> well, no, no. So go to clickbox.net, but just be careful when you click them. Don't, don't, don't click them on your work computer is what we're saying. Right? Well, this right. would be a good time to tell you, though, if you're listening to the application or the podcast through your like uh, podcast app on your phone, then you likely can see the show notes directly in your podcast oh, app. Right. Oh, that's a good point. And you can yeah. click it there. Yes, that's probably and not unless a it's a work sponsored phone, then don't do. It. <laughs> don't, it's a work sponsored phone enough. You're you're hopeless at that point. I don't know what to tell you. Like you're already awesome. using a work phone for, or or even your personal phone on your work Wi-Fi. That's probably not a good idea either. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> like, yeah, there's so many reasons not to do anything with your work type thing. But anyway, go ahead, Joe. Mm-hmm. Into well, the good things. stuff. Uh, two things, and uh, and then three things before we get to the good stuff. Real quick. Uh, one, I want to mention that there's exceptions for everything. So some of the companies that we say say no are, you know, maybe they have exceptions or they have, you know, maybe they, they uh, allow it next month or something after we record. And also subsidiaries can have completely different rules. If you look at like uh, GitHub's hiring versus uh, LinkedIn's hiring versus Microsoft company uh, hiring could be way different. Individual teams like the Windows team and the Azure team you know, which I'm sure are bigger than one individual team, but uh, those groups are going to have different hiring policies and, and whatever. So, you know, this, it's not really enough to say that one company does or doesn't, but I do have uh, we do have a list of like, I don't know, maybe 20 or 15 links here that are worth perusing. If you are thinking about making a step to like a big or prestigious company. And I think it's worth considering that if you haven't done that in your career yet, because having a big name on your resume can open so many doors down the line. So it might be worth giving a shot if you're, uh, you know, suddenly in a position where you want to be switching jobs and these things have become available. Cause like once you have like an Apple or Facebook or something like, I mean, it just does really great for the rest of your career. So it's something to consider. And totally. it's an Apple. Uh, so <laughs> there are three companies that I looked and, uh, they are, you know, three fame companies that I saw don't, don't seem to allow remote working. They're not hiring remote workers. All, now, all three of them have remote policies for COVID, but I couldn't find a single remote job listed that was like for programming, uh, for these three companies. And that was Apple, Netflix, and Google. That surprises me on Netflix, honestly. I don't know why. Oh, man. So Netflix, their CEO is straight up anti working from home. Interesting. 
Yeah, he's been interviewed. He's got some quotes talking about how it's just not as good and how it's, you know, well, basically all the downsides of it. So I don't see Netflix really going that route anytime soon. Hmm. They're the most antagonistic that I found. Apple, like, you, they're hard to even browse their jobs, honestly. It's like, do I have to create an account? And, like, they have the Apple Store stuff, too. It's kind of mixed in there. So it's just kind of overwhelming. So you it's really sign hard. up for the developer program to get the certificate so that you can sign your request <laughs> yeah, that too. to even that query too. it. Even to find, try and search for their jobs, like it, it's kind of hard to do it without signing up for an account and logging in and stuff. So, yeah, I just thought that was kind of a bad experience overall. I mean, you know, you want to work for Apple, fine, that's great. But um, that was just kind of strange to see a company that kind of makes it difficult to find out if they're hiring or not. Huh. I'm really surprised about Google, though, because I, I could have sworn that there was a story that came out last year um, with them announcing that they were going to. I know, I know as part of the, um, pandemic that Facebook had made big strides to going remote and like, I forget what the percentage was, but you know, by some time and within the next few years, like they were a a large portion of their workforce was going to be remote. If I recall. Yeah. That Facebook definitely did that. Yeah. Yeah. And so they're, they're one of the ones on the list. Let me mark that off. Yeah. Facebook has a lot of remote jobs open and I've been contacted by many recruiters letting me know that uh, Facebook is hiring and looking for remote workers. So they're definitely one of the ones that search has a really easy way to just click remote. So you can see all the engineering jobs that are remote. And, um, yeah, just double check Google. There's no way to search for remote jobs. I want to say if you search remote, you'll find like one <clears throat> and it's for something else. It's like remote controls or something. Uh, oh, and before we get into some of the other fan companies, got to mention two of our sponsors, sponsors for this episode, uh, also have remote careers. So Datadog and Datastax uh, data both have career pages with remote listings. So that's pretty awesome. Very cool. Uh, I just got, uh, I've got several buddies now that are working from Microsoft remote now. And uh, initially, it was just the people I knew that were kind of in consulting-ish or, you know, whatever the type of roles. Not anymore. I know uh, a couple people now that are doing remote development, full-time jobs for Microsoft. Very cool. I mean, Microsoft has really worked hard towards putting together the tools necessary to even be able to do that, right? Like Teams. Teams is, is not as good as Slack, but it's better than a lot of options out there. And it would make, I mean, my kids use it for school. Like it makes sharing documents and interacting and that kind of stuff really easy. And so they've, they've definitely been investing in what I believe they saw when the pandemic started about everybody's going to be in a remote world, you know? Yep. And they're so big too. Like you could work for uh, Microsoft and work for GitHub, which by the way is a hundred percent remote. Well, 100%. They have a remote, so their development team is is remote. I should say. Interesting. You know, I, I'm sure that somebody has an office somewhere, and you know, whatever sales, who knows? But yeah, they have a big thing about their remote culture on their website. But I didn't know that before looking for it. Hmm. Um, but yeah, just Microsoft, like, hey, GitHub, uh, LinkedIn, Xbox, Azure, Windows, Office, SharePoint. Uh, they have a huge consulting arm. Uh, it's just huge. You know, SQL Server, uh, both sides making SQL Server, and also. You know, people writing tools around it and stuff. So, yeah. Uh, Amazon. Amazon went to their <laughs> their site. They got 10,000 openings. God. And that's not, like, warehouse jobs. It's just freaking <laughs> Amazon jobs. Are we talking about IT? Oh, it's 11,000 now, open jobs. 
And they're uh, IT related or it's is it all? It's all. If I filter down okay. to uh, remote and software development, they are hiring for 165 remote software developers right now. Okay. That's a lot of remote positions that you could go apply for right now. Right. Amazon has a, a really rough, uh, you know, interview process. So you're going to want to do some problems on like leak code or something beforehand and read up on that. But if you're thinking about making that jump in 2021, here's a great option for you. That's a lot of open seats. And, uh, we actually know somebody who, uh, I didn't, I haven't told you all yet. I'll tell you later, but, uh, they just got a job with Amazon, uh, development from Nebraska. Cool. Working remote. So very cool. Cheers. You know who you are. And it pays well. Um, yeah. yeah. Especially years three and four, man. Woo. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, so mention GitHub, GitLab, same thing. Two big Git companies, just saying, that are, uh, full, have fully remote uh, development teams. Hmm. And, if only uh, we knew nope. anybody that liked Git. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> So Twitter is one of those companies that uh, changed their their policies and now they're hiring remote developers. So that's pretty cool. And I've got a couple here um, that have just, and you know, I guess GitHub and GitLab probably too, uh, but they have always been remote uh, developers. So uh, Confluent, we were talking a lot about with Kafka, Elastic. Uh, Mongo has a lot of jobs that are, are open. Um, Netlify, Heroku. And, you know, I should mention too, like all of these things, like, if you're a front-end developer, I hope you don't feel excluded because I'm talking about like Elastic and Mongo and Kafka because they all have websites, they all have documentation, they all have tools that have user interfaces that are all built in web. So, I, you know, these are not back-end distributed jobs. It's a mix of everything. Datadog, uh, you know, they're uh, a huge company and they do a lot of uh, you know monitoring APM type stuff. They have a lot of visualizations. Right, they've got a really strong front end engineering team. So hope you don't feel uh feel left out there. I do have a couple um I've got three links here to like remote game jobs in case you're working looking for like um getting into game development, game studios are looking for remote workers. Uh remote leaf and remote okay.io are two sites that I found that have uh job listings that are somewhat curated for remote development companies. And I added one in here because I didn't see it in your list. And that was just baffling to me because no developer would be complete without Stack Overflow. And they have remote work. And we actually, Outlaw and I, I believe it was just us. I don't think Joe was there. Correct. Sat in on a meetup where they did talk about their interview process, which was Really interesting, right? Like, uh, I, I mean, we don't want to dive into it too deep because I think we actually talked about it a little bit yeah. during our, our interview. Yeah. But one of the interesting things that they said is they would throw a problem out there and see how people start implementing it. And then they would change the rules a little bit to see, oh, well, the requirements just changed. What what are they going to do? Right. Um, did they back themselves into a corner? How are they going to fix that? Like, it was, it's very much an evolution of, okay, the interviewee did this. Let me see if I could throw a wrench in there. Okay. They did that. Now let me see if I can make a left turn up here. Right. Like it, it was just really cool to hear. So, yeah. So, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to add to it. Like it was, it was one of our favorite, we've described it as one of our favorite meetups. Yeah. Because it, it was a very, unique uh, 
take on the meetup in, in general, because they were basically doing like a for real interview, but we got to watch it like we were, it was almost like we went to a small off-Broadway play. And, right. you know, it was like the technical interview off Broadway and, <laughs> and, you know, but, uh, periodically during the, during the meetup, they would like interact with the, the audience there. So yeah, it was done really well. Yeah. How would you like uh, that so, to be your interview? Like, Hey, oh, uh, no. you want to do it for, at a meetup? <laughs> no, no. We're doing this live. <laughs> oh my gosh. No. <laughs> hey, no, can I pull the audience? It'd be it'd be like uh who wants to be a millionaire, right? Like, yo, can uh, can we do a fifty fifty? Can we kill two of the answers? Oh my there? gosh. <laughs> can I phone That'd a friend? Be hilarious. Right. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I used to do that on YouTube. Uh so so uh I'll end with a question that uh, I always like to ask people and you know when they're talking about jobs or whatever. Uh I strongly believe, I've said for a long time, that you should always know the top three companies that you would want to work for today if you lost your job or had to switch. Because then you can try to manage your car, your career, and try to kind of line yourself up with those things if those are, you know, really who you want to work for. And if they're not who you really want to work for, find someone that you do really want to work for. And keep that in mind. And uh, now I want to expand it and say, like, you know, if you are the kind of person that wants to, you know, work in an office and whatever, so fine. You should know your top three in your local area that you could go work for and go apply for tomorrow. Now, you should also, as a backup plan B, you know, we just listed like 20 companies. Go pick three that you think are the most interesting. And just low-key in the background, maybe follow them on Twitter, follow their engineering blogs, whatever. Start learning about them so that if you decide that you want to make a big leap in your career and try to do something, uh, make a big move – then you know what to kind of stock up and get that that ammo in your back pocket. Today's episode of Coding Blocks is sponsored by Datadog, a software-as-a-service-based monitoring and analytics platform for cloud-scale infrastructure, applications, logs, and more. Datadog uses machine learning-based algorithms to detect errors and anomalies across your entire stack, which reduces the time it takes to detect and address outages and helps promote collaboration between data engineering, operations, and the rest of the company. And if there's any company that you want to trust to know how to detect your errors and your anomalies, it's going to be Datadog because they have an article for everything. They have technology. They've got a plugin for everything that you want. It's built in, built into the tool. Like you, there's like 400 plus of these things just right built into it. And I promise you, like when, when I say they're everywhere and they know everything about this stuff, like there, there's a, there's a Kubernetes podcast. Uh, what was it? It was the, um, uh, the, actually it's called the Kubernetes podcast from Google episode 137. They were just on talking about the container report. So they're, they're, I can't, their expertise is out there and yeah, you should trust them for this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I love that episode. Actually, that's where I found the container report that we talked about in this episode. And we talked about Datadog a lot in this episode because they are really highly relevant and they answer a really important problem, which is, you know, seeing what the heck is going on. And they end up saving you a lot of money and saving you problems and saving you time. Time is money. Uh, so <laughs> it's, it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a no brainer to me, but, uh, you know, well, like, like I say, they got a, a cool t-shirt, so maybe I'm a bit biased. Yeah. And Hey, you want to get a cool t-shirt? Let me tell you how, here's your secret. Shh. Tell, tell only all of your friends. 
Go to datadoghq.com slash coding blocks today to start your free 14 day trial. And if you start that free 14 day trial and you install Datadog's agent, Datadog will send you a free t-shirt and it's a super cute t-shirt. It's got the Datadog logo on it, which, you know, if you're a cat person, I'm sorry, but it's, it's going to have a dog on it. It's, but you're going to like it either way. Cause it's awesome. Again, start your free data dog trial today to start monitoring in real time. Listeners of this podcast will receive a free t-shirt, just like we mentioned, once you install the agent and create one dashboard. So again, that URL you want to go to is datadoghq.com slash coding blocks, datadoghq.com slash coding blocks to get started today. And remember, only tell all of your friends and family and, you know, people you meet on the street, just everyone, just, you know, only tell everyone, but all of them. And check out the careers page. Just saying. Yes. Yeah. Good stuff. There hey there. We could use your review <laughs> really bad. Uh, Audible new platform just came up uh, with podcasts to do podcasts now. And they've got uh, a way to do reviews. If you are an audible listener, then you know how important reviews are for, you know, when you find books and stuff. And it's equally as important for uh, us to find, you know, new people on the podcast. So that's uh, huge for us. That's, you know, that's how we, as a podcast, survive. That's our air, our oxygen. So, uh, if you go to codingblocks.net slash review, we try to make it easy for you. We try to give you links to, to places that will uh, let you find the podcast on those platforms and leave reviews. And so if you, uh, like what you're hearing, then take a minute and leave us, uh, one of them five star babies, uh, cause we love this. All right. And with that, we head into my favorite portion of the show. Survey says, all right. So uh, a few episodes back, we asked, well, I mean, it was the holiday time. So this question is definitely going to make more sense if you frame it in that mindset. What's your favorite Christmas movie? And your choices were, it's a wonderful life. I like the classics. Or a Charlie Brown Christmas, that poor, poor Christmas tree. Or... Frosty the Snowman with a corn cob pipe and a butt on his nose, or wait a minute, uh, or a Christmas story. Only I didn't say fudge. Or how the Grinch stole Christmas because my heart is three sizes too small. Or the Nightmare Before Christmas. It's what I imagine happens when Jack White meets Tim Burton. Or Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer. An awkward story about being different enough to be important. Or <laughs> Die Hard. It is a Christmas movie. Welcome to the party, pal. All right. So uh, thanks to, to Tucko, uh, we know that Alan would go first because this is an odd numbered episode. This, this one's hard, man, because like I, all of these are great, right? But I'm going to say that the overwhelming majority is going to say a Christmas story, only I didn't say fudge. Um, <laughs> it, <laughs> and I'm going to go. <laughs> it was painful. I was like, just get it out. Say it already. Right. Uh, I think I'm going to go with 25% because there's a lot of choices here. Okay. 10%. On. 
<laughs> Did you pick mine? I mean, that's the right answer. Yeah. So, 10%. <laughs> A Christmas he went story. Price is right on me. One dollar. A Christmas story. Ten yep. percent. Okay, so Joe goes a Christmas story ten percent, and Alan goes Christmas story twenty five percent. Is that correct? Yep. Yep. Survey says you're both wrong. No. Come on, man. Nobody really? picked yours. Of no. course, it's no going to be Die Hard. No. Are you kidding me? I don't but believe it. But it's not a Christmas movie. It it's is a Christmas, Christmas movie. And you're you making stuff up. It takes part during Christmas. I need to see the results. Listen, it was, it was 57% of the vote was Die Hard. Really? A Christmas story. 57. I would have assumed would have been like a definitely a strong contender for second place. <laughs> it was third. Wow. The Grinch. The Grinch. No, you would have thought, right? Nightmare Before Christmas, of course. Charlie Brown was second. No. Right? No. Right? No, man. Like, no, okay. come on. That doesn't even make sense. Well, I could say 50 57% of you are, are cooler than me, uh, apparently. <laughs> but how Nightmare Before Christmas wasn't you know in the top three, I will never understand. I've never seen it, honestly. It was in the bottom three. I know, right? Oh, it, my gosh. It's the only one that I can tolerate. That and Christmas Story. A Christmas Story, yeah. You should try out. I don't know how you could think that, how you could say that you can't tolerate Die Hard. Come on. Oh, yeah, because I mean, it's not a Christmas movie. Yeah, that's but why it is I, a Christmas movie. It. <laughs> Listen, it is a Christmas movie. And let me tell you something. Like, let me point out this because <laughs> <laughs> think about it this way. Think about it this way. And, and next time you watch Die Hard, you're going to be like, like, your mind's going to be like blown. Like, you, you'll never be able to see the movie in the same light again. The movie takes place on Christmas Eve. Now let that sink in for a second, because that means that all those people worked on Christmas Eve, and then after they had a Christmas party at the office on Christmas Eve. <laughs> so it was bad writing. But no! I, I haven't that was even not the takeaway, Alan. <laughs> that was the takeaway. Bad writing. But... I haven't seen this movie in so many years that I don't even remember what Bruce Willis looks like in oh the my movie. God. <laughs> Alan, I could practically quote the movie from the start. Do you want to just... Hey, look, man. I know you watch it at least 12 times a year. I haven't seen it since probably 1990. So, yeah, it's been a minute. <laughs> I, I don't... What, how, how do you... Do you not watch Christmas movies at Christmas? What kind of monster are you? <laughs> Oh, and by the way, it's been a minute. There was a whole discussion on that over in Slack about how, hey, what is this? Is this some new hipster young thing? Like, okay, boomer. Wait, what was the, what was the hipster young thing? That, that, like, hey, is that nobody had seen a, Die Hard. No, no, it's been a minute. Say, so, like, when something's yep. been a long time, say it has been a minute. So, yeah, that was that was actually a really entertaining conversation. Yeah. Nobody's yeah. seen Die Hard. Nobody believes it's a Christmas movie. So we're good there. Oh, my God. All right. All right. Well, <laughs> then you're going to be disappointed when you see part two that opens up with, you know, Christmas music as well. And they both, uh, one and two, end on the same Christmas song. Matt, I'm going to have to watch it. Like maybe this weekend. I don't know. All right. You definitely should, but this is 
not the time of year to watch a Christmas movie. That would just be awkward. <laughs> so, was, I mean, so are we saying that? Uh, so there were parts of Forrest Gump that were like an '80s. So is that an '80s movie? Have you seen Forrest Gump? Yeah, I would say yeah, yeah. '80s movie. The 80s All right. Movie. Yeah, <laughs> sure. It's also I like, like your logic. Movie. Sure, or a '90s movie, whatever. Life is like a box of chocolates. Yeah. <laughs> Oh God! <laughs> now do we all have to do like a Forrest Gump impersonation? I think we do. I think we do because Alan <laughs> started it. Southerner, I am offended. I like sauteed shrimp, pepper shrimp, and <laughs> oh my gosh! I want to hear Joe's. Come on, Joe. Um, ow! Something bet me. <laughs> that was my favorite scene. That's pretty good. I didn't expect it. That's pretty good. Yeah. All right, all right, all right. I got some big. I got some big shoes to fall. <laughs> I like your shoes. <laughs> I'm in my first pair of shoes. Mama said they's my magic shoes. She said they take me anywhere. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> oh. uh, all right. Well. Uh, Okay, I'm going to change the topic because this is going off the rails. So instead, hey, here's a fun one for you. What's the opposite of uh, formaldehyde? I don't know, man. Nunyahide, I, I don't know. Casual de Jekyll. Oh my gosh. Oh, That's awesome. Okay, I like it. I like it. <laughs> ah, thank you, Klaus. <laughs> It's awesome. Uh, All right. So uh, for this episode, then we're talking about, um, you know, what were we talking about? I forgot now, Uh, you know, languages and working from home. So I guess this question has nothing to do with it. Um, I thought it did when I, when I started that. It does after this. Oh, sorry. (laughs) This is going to make sense later. Uh, Hear me now and understand me later. Yes. All right. So today's episode survey will be, when you start a new project in regards to the storage technology, do you go with what you know? It's not even a debate. Or try something new. Might as well learn something. Or seriously consider the options. Deliberate, debate, try not to hate. Or pff, storage. You're funny. This episode is sponsored by Datastax. If you've done curbside pickup from a major retail store, checked Pinterest, or watched a movie on Netflix, you're already a Cassandra user. Why not make something amazing with Cassandra yourself? Okay, so we haven't gotten there yet, but we're going to talk about a lot of data storage technologies in this episode, and Cassandra is one of them. And truly, if you need a scalable data storage mechanism, Cassandra is one of the best out there. But maybe what's not so fun is trying to keep that thing running and and chugging along and staying alive. And that is where data stacks can help you out. Yeah. So as Alan was saying, data stack at Astra does the heavy lifting of managing the infrastructure, serverless scaling operations, creating your data access APIs so that you can focus on the code that matters to you. Astra automatically provides standard developer-friendly APIs like REST, GraphQL, schemaless JSON documents, even a native SQL 
CQL query language, uh, which is their own Cassandra query language, is an easy button for a scale-out, always-on database as a service that spans the globe. I've had my eye on Cassandra for a long time. I'm still really trying to wrap my head around it because it's a whole other class of database that I'm used to dealing with. A uh, wide column, highly available. Uh, one of the, the phrases I've seen uh, used about uh, data stacks particularly is uh, they're viral from day one, which is a, a really cool notion and something I've been wanting to explore for a long time. So, hey, keep your eye out for a stream. I really want to get that done soon. But I do want to mention when you when you first sign up with data stacks, they're so user-friendly for developers. One of the first things you do when you create an account with your you know, GitHub account or Google or email and password is there's a drop-down that says, are you just learning Cassandra? Are you building an app or are you migrating an app? And based on that, they cater that beginning experience for you. So for me, obviously, I picked, I picked learning Cassandra and it immediately threw me into really nice getting started guides that showed me basically what the heck was going on and how I can really get my hands on it and start moving immediately, which is just really exciting for me. So I, I mean, one of these days, I just got to get some time on a Saturday and just get in there and, and learn what's going on. Yeah. And you know, we'll get into like use cases of when you might want to uh, use Cassandra, but one of the things that I love about data Astra here is the multi-cloud multi-tenant, or or dedicated clusters on AWS, Azure, or Google Cloud. Like, pick one. Pick three. Whatever you want. They're there. They're there for your needs. And, by the way, you can get started in five minutes or less, no credit card needed, five gig free database. Go to datastacks.com slash coding blocks to sign up today and... Get $300 free credit with promo code CODINGBLOCKS. That's pretty amazing, right? So again, that's datastacks, D-A-T-A-S-T-A-X dot com slash CODINGBLOCKS. Sign up today and get your free $300 credit. But you got to use the promo code CODINGBLOCKS. All right, so we're back. And now that thing that we did in the past that we said you'd understand in the future, we're here now. We're in the future. And it was like 60 <laughs> seconds ago. Remember? Yeah, six. Yeah, back then. So of late, <laughs> I've had some internal musings about this. And I, I, can, I can honestly say that the three of us have spent a lot of time dealing with storage technologies and what they're really good at and what they're not so good at. And you can spend a lot of time trying to work around what they're not good at. Right? Like we did an episode on search engines. I don't know when I'm sure outlaw knows the number off the top of his head. Seventy-nine. <laughs> uh, but, but one of the things that we said is, really good for search, right? Like really good for, for reading, not so fast at writing because it has to index things and do all kinds of stuff. Right. So maybe all, you know, is Elasticsearch. All you've ever done is write search applications. So it makes sense. And then you get this new project handed to you and you have to do relational data. And, a lot of people would just say, well, I know Elasticsearch. I'm going to figure out a way to make it work in here, right? Because that's where I've spent all my time. That's what I'm going to do. And 
vice versa, I've seen where people are like, well, I know SQL Server. <laughs> we'll make it do it. And and that's – I just kind of wanted to bring up, like, if you're going to be working on a project that's going to have any kind of substantial amount of lifetime or data to it, and it's not just some little project that you're spinning up to make something happen – it might be worth knowing about the different types of storage engines out there just so you can make a decision that will benefit the project and you and the organization as a whole as time goes on. Right. So I don't know. You guys, we'll talk about the different types here in a second. You guys have any follow up thoughts on that? I think it's kind of like the languages, you know, we said it's um, there's different categories. And so, kind of knowing the ones from the one or or kind of having a favorite or two from the ones that uh, you're most interested in are are really interesting. So I was just kind of, I was actually just going through the categories and saying like, Hmm, which ones am I most familiar with here and there? And, and so it was just, uh, just kind of interesting. And especially when we talk about things like Presto or whatever, that kind of tie things together. I was just kind of um, thinking about what that means here. I think it's, I think it's easy for all of us, whether it be the language that you want to code in or that the storage uh, technology you want to use, it's easy for us to, uh, you know, I have a hammer and everything is a nail. Right. And so, you know, and by that, I mean like I'm going to use C sharp to solve every problem I ever have, or I'm going to use SQL server for everything. Um, you know, so, so I think that the, ask is on us to, you know, try to try to recognize if we are doing that and, you know, to, to be aware of the pitfalls that come with that, because then you're going to try to code your way around problems that might not exist had you picked the right technology for your particular use case. And so you need to evaluate what your use case is carefully to make sure that you, you understand like, you know, Yes, this would be the technology of choice for that thing. One thousand, hundred thousand percent agree with what you just said. It, the if you start feeling like you're creating an inordinate amount of code to make something happen, and it feels unnatural, it probably is, right? It maybe there's not something that meets your exact need. Maybe there is, but at any rate. So let's go through some of the categories here. So first, I want to mention that I did. I, I love this website. I've been there several times over the years. It's db-engines.com. And they have a ranking. Like you can just go to their ranking. And they list them all out, like from the most popular to the least popular. And there are so many of these things. Like uh, on this page, they have 334 storage engines listed on this one page. That's a lot. Um, I don't think by any stretch you should be going down to the bottom of the list to picking something unless you just want a side project. But, you know, it's cool to know that there's a lot out there. So first up is probably the one that has been around that most people are familiar with the longest. And that's the relational database. Now, I put a couple asterisks, asterisks next to this thing. Simply because they used to, like even on the site here, this um, dbengines.com, it used to just be listed as a relational database. Now, when you go there, rightfully so, almost 
every one of them says relational comma multi-model. And the reason they do this, and this is important, it's because most people have done just what Outlaw said a minute ago, which is, I have a hammer, everything's a nail. If you look at SQL Server, it has functionality to be a search engine. You can turn on full-text search indexing, and it can be a search engine. It's not a scalable search engine, but it's got one. You can do graph databases in SQL Server. It has the ability to do graph database type stuff in there. It's got the ability to do things like JSON stuff. Like there are so many different things that they've crammed into it because people have said over time, I pay for SQL Server. I want to use it for everything, right? And so that's what they've done. That's actually the case also um, with Postgres SQL, probably Oracle, and a couple other things that they threw in here. I've also got MySQL on that list. Uh, a couple other ones that I threw in here are some of the cloud-provided ones. So there's uh, Google's BigQuery. There's Azure Cosmos DB. You're going to hear that one a lot because they've tried to make that the Swiss Army knife of databases in the cloud. So, yeah, man, relational databases. If you are dealing with data that is related and, and you need lookup data that ties to 10 different tables or something, that's your tool. Outlaw, you look like you're about to say something. Well, yeah. Uh, thank you for recognizing. Um, I, I didn't even raise my hand. You didn't, right? Uh, see, I, I see these cues. I forgot. I, that's what that's what threw it off. I should have raised my hand. Right. Um, yeah. You know, you were talking about like everything being uh, like they're constantly like adding in and it becomes a Swiss army knife. Like with, I think it was like the 2017 version of SQL server that added in support for R and Python directly in your code. Like you could, you could write a store procedure or a code that would call out to Python and pass in the results. It was actually kind of neat because, you know, especially if, you know, if you're thinking about like from a machine learning kind of perspective, if you wanted to, uh, um, you know, do anything with that, but I never saw anything like, um, real world with it though. It seemed kind of like, that's cool that you can do that. Right. I don't know that you should do that. Yeah. You asked for it. We gave it to you. Now, uh, you mentioned the, the J the, uh, JSON support though. Um, Postgres SQL actually has some pretty cool JSON support in it. Very good JSON support, as a yeah. matter of fact, like amazingly good. Yeah, it's not. It's, it doesn't feel like it's necessarily an afterthought. Like it was a well approached. Probably, you know, don't use it for all your JSON needs. Probably not. So, well, is SQL Server still y'all's go to for relational? Hmm. Hmm. Would have been a couple of years ago, like five years ago, right? I. I all right. It hasn't so, gotten any worse. No, no, it, it, it's getting better. Here's where I'll say. So I, I think I know what outlaw is going to say on SQL server. The reason it would be a go-to for me is all the amazing tooling built around it. If you need to move data, you got SSIS. If you need <laughs> extended tools, you've got Redgate tools, right? Like, there's so much built around SQL Server because it's a paid product that people are willing to pay for that there's a lot of things out there for it, right? 
But now, Outlaw, I'll let you take what you were about to say because I think I know where you're going to go. Yeah, I mean, I've had a love affair for the past few years now with Postgres SQL. So there's nothing else I would even consider if I, I mean, it's free. So right there, like, and there's a huge community around it. So, you know, unless, unless you had some reason why that wasn't going to be like, if it was too much or something like, you know, um, maybe if it was like a, you know, an I, IOT kind of application or something where you needed a super light footprint and maybe you just wanted like a SQL light database or something like that. But otherwise, yeah, like for any kind of like real kind of lifting, I, you know, I would consider Postgres SQL well, well before I would go to SQL server. What about you, Joe? Yeah, I mean, that's where I'm at. I, uh, I am so much more comfortable in SQL server though. <laughs> that's definitely, uh, I think in SQL server first. And so it pains me to say that, but I don't really understand that SQL Server licensing. Uh, I would I would do a managed service for uh, if I was doing like a cloud kind of product, uh, you know, that had a backend. I would use a managed service for a database anyway. So I, you know, I, I'm kind of tempting to to go with SQL Server, but Postgres. I don't know. It just seems like it kind of is a natural fit there, and I know it's free. Uh, so I yeah, I'm I'm torn, but I would probably go Postgres, I guess. And you can I mean, run it on any platform, and it would also be available on any cloud platform that you'd want to do too. Now, that's if you the, want a relational service data. too, though. That, that's yeah. If you, yeah, cloud SQL has SQL Server, uh, Azure, right? Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. You know, yeah. it's the three I, big. I know, but it sounded like that's why you were saying you would go SQL Server, though. Is that um, maybe I misunderstood? But it sounded like you were saying like that was one of the things you liked about going with SQL Server is that it would be available in in cloud platforms and I'm saying like so is Postgres SQL, but also like, you know, yeah, with what version was it where they introduced um the Linux capability for SQL Server? I think it was seventeen you know, also. Twenty seventeen. Okay. Yeah. You know, but the point is is like so it's relatively still a new thing for yeah. for SQL Server, but yet it's not for Postgres. <laughs> you know, it's it's that's a well oiled machine by now in Postgres. Well, there, there is one more thing I want to call out about relational databases in general. I'm not saying completely because there are exceptions, but they typically don't scale horizontally, right? And that is that is a very, very big thing. If you know that you're going to be dealing with, yeah, not yeah, yeah. If you're if you know you're going to be dealing with, <clears throat> you know, terabytes of data that you need to do relationally may not work out great, right? And that's that's one thing to call out. Now, go ahead, Outlaw. Asterisk, right? Asterisk. There's an asterisk on that statement. Because, again, my love of Postgres, like, if you're, you know, that, that horizontal, scaling horizontal is true for the writes, but not for the reads. Which still can matter. So, yeah. I, it depends on, like, what your application is. This is right, where it goes back to right. knowing your use case, right? Right. If totally. your use case is like a, a an application where like, you know, it's going to be heavy reads, like, like take a look at, uh, you know, codingblocks.net. It's my favorite website. It's the most popular one according to Alexa. Uh, you know, that is a, a, you know, we get a billion concurrent users and so it's heavy reads, right? And limited rights to, to it, right? So depending on your, your, your use case, you know, it might be fine. 
You know, honestly, who am I kidding? I'm going to try and run my database in Kubernetes for as long as I can. <laughs> right? Like, I'm there. I'm, you know, I'm sold. But you know, I was, uh, I was actually just scrolling through the uh, Datadog uh, data report for 2020. Uh, did you know that Postgres is the number third most popular container image? Oh, that's really interesting. Number three. And, no, I uh, didn't. They they have a lot of data at Datadog. What's uh, one and two? Uh, Nginx and Redis. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, uh, I'll just blast these rules uh, real quick. They're, um, they're, it's, it's crazy to me how many of them are database related. Uh, I guess not. Uh, I don't know. I have completely thoughts about why, but uh, Elasticsearch is number four. Then MySQL number six, RabbitMQ and Calico are tied. Uh, MongoDB is number seven. Hmm. Number eight, Kafka. Hmm. Yeah, that was all right. That's. I, a so, lot of data storage engines there. Yeah, I think all of them, except for Nginx, all of them have been storage related. Yeah. 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 Uh, next is GitLab and Jenkins. They're tied. Interesting. Makes sense. And the last one is Vault. HashCorp's huh. Vault. Yeah, but yeah, I thought it was super interesting uh, that to see how many were data related. And I was wondering if this, is that because like the, the app stuff is just so fractured? It's like different languages and stuff. It's like you might have a company that's Python, Ruby, uh, C sharp, Java, but they're all using Postgres. You know, I, I think that's exactly what it is. I mean, if, if you boil it down to front end or, or server type technologies that are serving up things, there's so many different flavors of it. So you're not going to get a strong, uh, focus on on a particular one, right? Like you probably have Flask and Django type containers that are running. That right there split your your group in half, right? Whereas everybody got to store that stuff somewhere. So it kind of makes sense that those data storage engines would be high up on that list, I would think. And it should I should clarify too, this is a top, they call it off the shelf images. So this means you are straight up running the image from Docker Hub. Right. And uh, for something like a Python, you're going to do a from Python and you're going to add all your stuff on top of it. So right. that's probably a huge part of that too. So, it, you know, that's, uh, that's definitely something, but right. it's interesting. And they've got a, a really great graph here on the survey report. Uh, so yeah, data dog's good at that stuff. Yeah. And did you know, like, I, I don't, we're on a data dog kick now. Um, yeah, no, I'll forget it. That would just go to their blog. They've got a topic for everything and I'll leave it at that. Right. And get you a shirt while you're at it. They really yeah. do. <laughs> All right. So we talked about the relational databases, right? And for the fact that you're going to use them for relational data, reads, writes, transactions. If you need transactional data, they're really good at it. Most of them, right? Meaning that. Uh, you need to write an order, then you need to write order details, and you need to write payment details before you can say something's done. They have transactions that basically say, hey, if this failed in the middle, roll it back. Don't keep any bad, dirty data in there. Roll it back, right? So that's what we're talking about there. So relational database is really good for that. A lot of use cases. The next one up that I've got here is search. So search engines, um, Elasticsearch, Splunk, Solar, Azure search, AWS cloud search, there's a bunch of them. This is something where you write data, the engine indexes that data so that you can search it effectively to get stuff back out. It is highly optimized 
for reading and truly using search capabilities to get it back, right? And a lot of times these things are horizontally scalable. Elasticsearch, I don't know about solar. Uh, Splunk definitely is. Azure Search does it for you behind the scenes. AWS Cloud Search does it for you behind the scenes. But yes, not great for updating documents in, in large amounts of data. Fantastic at searching large amounts of data that you've indexed. I thought, am I wrong? I thought AWS Cloud Search was based on solar. It might be wrong? on uh, Lucene. It, it might be on the Lucene engine. Um, very much, very possible that it is. There is AWS Elasticsearch and AWS Cloud Search, and they may both be, both be Elasticsearch under the hood. Yeah, Cloud Search is their own. You don't really know what's behind the scenes, right? You just use their their interfaces. Um, yeah, I mean, it probably is using Lucene or Solar behind the scenes, but. Um, yeah, so it's a managed service, right? It's a managed search engine for you. Uh, whereas the other ones you're going to have to stand up and maintain and keep running solar. It is solar. There's, there's a, there's a, uh, an, in the AWS developer forms, there's a question about, is it solar based is, is cloud search solar or based on solar and an Amazon employee responds back. It does use solar as the underlying engine. Okay. And he, he references an article in the cloud search FAQ. Cool. So I guess my key point here is if you are doing something like a search engine, I, I'll never forget years and years ago, somebody reached out to me. I don't even remember why me specifically, but it was random from the internet. Somebody was building a WordPress plugin site that was more searchable. So if you've ever had to search for WordPress plugins, their search is annoying. Like you can't sort by the most downloads or you used to couldn't or the highest rated or, Hey, only give me the highest rated that has more than three ratings, right? Like there was no great way to sort through the plugins. And so this guy decided he wanted to create a website. Let's call it word search or WordPress plugin search.com or something. And what he did is he crammed all the data into a MySQL database. And guess what? Just like what we said earlier, relational databases are good at some things, not so great at others. So search was one of the things that it struggled with because you're not indexing the data eight ways from Sunday, right? So if he would use the search engine, put this stuff in here, indexed it once a day, then his search would have been super fast. He would have had crazy quick aggregates, paging, all that kind of stuff, right? That's what search engines bring to the table. But if you're trying to do something like update the number of page hits every time somebody clicks a page, a search engine is not where you want to try and do those updates, right? It's not made for that kind of stuff. I don't know if you guys have anything else you want to add on to these. I mean, specific to the, you know, I mean, I don't want to bash on that one. We did, we did do a whole deep dive on, on search driven apps that was episode 83 and we covered a lot of the, the technologies there. So. Yep. All right. So the next category I have up is document databases and you might've heard of this one, Mongo. Uh, we've got Amazon's dynamo DB. It's actually AWS dynamo DB, but, uh, and then Azure cosmos DB showing up again and then couch DB. 
And really what this is, is just what it sounds like. You're storing an object. So if, if you're familiar with JSON, then it's, you know, you've got a definition of an object, right? If it's a person that has a first name, last name, and, you know, an age, we'll say you store that entire document as a record over there. It's not broken out into separate fields or anything like that. If you ever want to come back and update that document in a, in a relational database, let's say that um, just as an example, let's say that you had an employee thing, right? And all three of us report to the same manager in a relational database. You can just say, Hey, um, they changed managers from manager one to manager two, right? In a document database, you don't have those luxuries. You got to go find all those documents, pull them out and update each one of them individually to point to it. And a lot of times you save the data denormalized too, because it just makes more sense. It's faster, right? You don't, you don't have the same type of luxuries typically that you do in a relational database. And now it's flexible. You know, the, the relational database can kind of get this from that, join this, that, whatever, no big deal. And the query optimizer will figure it out. The, uh, those NoSQL, we've talked about this before. Those, uh, you know, document databases, like you really, you kind of have to understand how your data is being used in order to arrange that in a smart way because it's, it's kind of on you, but it's really convenient, especially if you have a lot of JSON. Well, yeah. sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, you're good. I, it's kind of interesting that you say though that they're not flexible because it really depends. Like, and cause we've talked about this before, right? Um, I think as part of the designing data intensive, uh, application series, um, because the, the, the main difference between like a relational database and a document database is where, when is the schema going to be enforced? Because in a document database, uh, you know, that JSON that you mentioned, one document to the next might not have all the same fields. And so in a relational database, the schema is enforced when you write to the table, right? Like you can't, you can't like just decide to add a new column and like insert into some fictitious column column that doesn't exist yet and expect that that to work. Also, if there's a column that has a not null value, you can't exclude it unless there's a default constraint on it on that column in a relational database. But in a document DB, the like kind of similar to what Joe said, the onus is on you as the caller to enforce whatever schema you want, you choose to use as part of that. Right. Um, so, so when you read that document, you're going to like do the checking to see that it matches what you, what you, uh, you know, spe- expect to have, and you know, you'll make the decisions how to deal with it at that time. Yep. So it's kind of, it kind of is like a little bit, uh, you know, it is more flexible in some ways. Well, this is where, you know, looking at like order systems in the past, you know, a lot of times they would be done in relational databases. And, and when people d- design the shopping carts or whatever, they wouldn't think about what some of the implications were, right? Like, so for instance, um, let's say that we set up Joe, Zach as a customer. He's got his address as, you know, 123 Main Street or whatever. And if you do that in a relational way, when he orders a product last year and he was at 123 Main Street, that's all good. It's going to get to his house. It's going to say it shipped and it, and it was there. If you kept this in a relational world and now he moves to three, four, five, you know, second street, 
if you update that record, it updates the history of where things happened, right? And people a lot of times didn't think about that in the relational world. This is where something like a document database can really shine because you can save the entire order as it happened, basically as a snapshot in time, right? So here's the order. Here's the order details attached to that same document. Here's the address. Here's the billing, the shipping, all of it never changes, right? doesn't matter if somebody goes in and updates his information in the address book, that orders a snapshot. So, you know, knowing those use cases matter. And again, like Joe said, knowing how you're going to use that data really drives how you're going to store and set up those schemas in your application. And, and a lot of times it's up to your application to have the smarts of how it is. Like for me, that's the biggest challenge. You go into a database, you look at a table, you say, hey, this table requires these five columns, right? You go into a document database, the only way you're going to find that stuff is if you start looking at application code, typically, right? Uh, unless you start doing some metadata querying to say, hey, what are all the fields that show up in this particular um, storage area? But it, it, it is a different use case. I'm sorry, I'm just all hung up to get if I want to go manage service or uh, Kubernetes for my hypothetical uh, application here. Kubernetes. How much pain do you want to endure? Wait, no, no. There's two things. How much pain and how much cost? Because I've actually heard people say that Azure Cosmos DB is amazing. You can run up a bill with that thing pretty quick, right? It's proprietary, though. I just have a hard time with, uh, with that. Uh, actually, I'd like to take this as a moment uh, to remind you of uh, K8S.AF so that um, as you're contemplating, you know, Kubernetes versus managed, you know, there's a lot of greatness about Kubernetes. I'm not going to knock it, but, you know, <laughs> oh, there's also true. some some horrific stories about it as well. Ah, uh, whatever. Uh, yeah, <laughs> whatever. You can't listen to them haters. <laughs> But, well, but I no. can, I can, because I tell you what, just recently bit me. What recently bit me is that apparently there was a known bug that if you used in a label, a hashtag or a pound sign or whatever you choose to, whichever, oh, you, you know, do that, you know, depending right? on what your age is, you might call it a hashtag or, you know, might call it a pound <laughs> sign. And it brought down the cluster though. Just because right. that one character was in the label of a, a pod disruption budget, like that is that is that is that is crazy. That is so no. comical to think that like a single character could bring down a cluster. Out, so yeah, that that's a, that's definitely a a K eight uh, <laughs> story K eight AF story right there. That's power. No, is like, it, I'm sorry. There should never be just save yourself from headache and never put spaces in names of anything. Yeah. Don't use special characters. Yeah. It, you know, I mean, if you have to find underscores, if for some reason you can't do that, find dashes and keep your, keep your name short too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying that it was I, Truth. You know, like, I don't even know how that character got in there. I don't, I don't know, you know anything about it. I'm assuming that it was like some automation tool that like, you know, because it was already like, I, it already seems like it would be bad, right? Because that would be treated, you would think that that would be treated as a, like an inline comment in YAML, but I don't think YAML supports an inline comment. 
And by the way, or am I the wrong? cluster the cluster he's talking about crashing was actually a Google Kubernetes engine cluster, right? So we're talking about the company that basically wrote the book on Kubernetes. Uh, yeah, that that was impressive work. I mean, I wasn't going to throw them under the bus, man. Like, wow. <laughs> I mean, it'll probably happen in Azure. At, what, what is it? AK, um, I a- can't even remember. A- Azure Kubernetes. A- AKE? Is it AKE? AK, I can't remember now. I don't whatever. Remember. Yeah, it, it crashed the entire cluster, but whatever. All right, so let's move along here because I, I think I am dragging on these. Um, so we got key value stores. Those are those are truly what they sound like. Um, you've got Redis, uh, Amazon DynamoDB, Cosmos DB. Again, the Swiss Army knife of everything. Memcached and etcd. And if you didn't know, etcd is actually used in Kubernetes behind the scenes for storing um, values, key value pairs. Um, it's really, you know, Hey, you have a, you have a value and then you have another value assigned with it. That's, that's as simple as that. The beautiful benefit to these is they typically scale pretty well. Um, if you're talking about something like Redis, you know, that's an in-memory thing. You probably aren't scaling that, but as your dynamo DB, you can kind of throw whatever you want at it and it'll scale. The next one is one that I think me and Joe Zach had fallen in love with a while back. Uh, and I've taken a long hiatus from it was graph databases, man. These things are amazing. If you load them up, right? Yeah. And they, they make really hard things really easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, there's definitely some downsides and, and how you have to work with them is definitely different for me, but, uh, it's just, it's just really cool to be able to solve some really hard problems by like, let me see all the people who, uh, have this and are associated with that and also have that and zippy to do There you go. And that's something in SQL that would be like a uh, many levels of nesting and take you forever to run in a graph database basically is just set up for that. Right. And the big difference there is, like I mentioned earlier, SQL Server supports graph databases. You can actually set it up to be a graph database. But the big difference is it's almost like uh, with with Elasticsearch or any of the search engines, you have to know how you need to put that data in there to be able to set it up to do those relationships, right? Like you can't just take a relational database and say, oh, here it is, point these at these. And it's all going to work because it's not quite as simple. Although they tried to do, they tried to make it that way with SQL Server. Um, but some of these are Neo4j. I think that's the most popular one by a pretty long shot. Azure Cosmos DB again, DB Graph, and again I put my uh, SQL Server in here as one of the ones that I know that they have that feature in there. Um, the next one up, another storage type technology is time series databases. So this is a database where every entry in there is basically timestamp. They are expecting you to get data in because you want to track it over time, right? So think uh, not necessarily logs, but a lot of times metrics or anything like that that you want to see over time. These are the types of things that you're going to be looking at. And some of the popular ones are InfluxDB, KDB+. I've never heard of that one. And Prometheus. Prometheus is used a lot of times for um, tracking metrics and applications, right? Like, uh, that kind of stuff. Grafana. Yeah. You'll use Grafana with Prometheus a lot to be able to visualize that stuff. Um, and then, so here's wide column databases. This one's interesting. Uh, we'll be talking about, uh, one of our sponsors here in a minute, data stacks, Cassandra. 
Cassandra is one of them, HBase, Azure Cosmos DB again, and Google Bigtable was probably the OG of all of these, I think. Because as a matter of fact, I believe that Cassandra was built based off the white paper that Google had put out on their Bigtable setup. But the wide column one, I was reading about it and really... I, I don't know the best way to put it other than it's similar to columnar storage, except you can store multiple columns per data file. And so it, it gives you a little bit more flexibility, but so these are sort of in a, in a thing all their own. And a lot of these have a tendency to be able to scale like crazy, right? Like that's Cassandra's claim to fame is you can scale that thing. Just stupid. And you're basically guaranteed 100% availability, right? And and it's fast. So all pretty interesting things. Know about those. And then the columnar file formats. Oh, I'll let somebody else grab this because it looks like somebody added it here and at the end. Yeah, I just threw that in there. Um, that was something that uh, I just think is really cool. Like uh, you can do some really cool stuff with just flat files if you've got like a, a tool that you can use to query. Like we talked about Drill or um, what was the other one we always talk about? Um, Presto, Presto, yeah. And and, uh, and so columnar uh, file formats are, are just a cool way of um, serializing your data so that it can be read and um, used really easily. And so uh, we've got Parquet, Orc, and uh, I keep hearing a lot about Arrow, which uh, sounds really interesting, but it's a little bit more involved than just the format. But, uh, yeah, it looks neat, so i got my eye on it. Hey, one of the things when we were first looking at these things that I didn't realize at the time, I don't know why, but when we talk about these file formats, Parquet, Oric, Arrow, whatever, it's storing lots of records in a single file. And then within that file, the records are broken up into columnar, um, columns for their indexing, more or less. And a lot of times they'll also have metadata in the files so that you can get quick stats on the files. And that's how tools like drill and presto db and all that can query these things so fast. So it's it's interesting. You you take 500 gigs of data and stick it into a parquet file or not 500 gigs, 500 megs of data, put it into a parquet file. And the way that it's stored in that file is what makes it fast to read. But wasn't it uh is it orc that I'm thinking of? There was a there was a something that Uber created that was to make to work with parquet files because like parquet files are not, it's not advantageous to like try to, you can't update those easily in place. And, uh, Uber specifically came out with a technology where they were keeping the metadata separate from the other files so that you could get high level stats about it. But then they had another technology that they were using to do their write spec. Do you remember what was the name of that? Hoodie. Hoodie. That's what it was. Yes. H U D I. So, so ORC is actually another flat file format that came, I believe, after Parquet that's supposed to be more efficient. I think there are some tools out there that are way faster if using the ORC format versus Parquet. But Parquet is like the kind of the standard, like maybe the, you know, the one that, that most things out there support. And, you know, it's interesting, too, because we we talked about all this but like similar to that um um the conversations we had related to the design of data intensive applications you know there are other like storage technology type applications like a kafka that mm-hmm. aren't considered 
a, a database per se, but they kind of are like when you like really start to like talk about like indexing, right. Then it's like kind of what's the difference at that point. Right. Because you know, the, they do have, um, you know, you Kafka is kind of a unique animal in this regard because you can go without a schema. So it could be like a document database or you can have a schema, right? And you can, but use that's some, a separate technology, right? Like, it is. It totally is. Separate, yeah. But, but, uh, you know, but there's, but there is like a, um, you know, a deterministic way of, of, uh, like how this particular file is going to be written to like, which partition is it going to be written out to, right? All of the, all of the, the, the behind the scenes of how it's writing is very database like. And in fact, I think there is like a rocks DB that's used in my, am I thinking streams, wrong? uh, streams uses rocks okay. DB to manage. It's like, you know, storing of keys for joining and whatnot. But so, so that's, that's, that's where, that's where, that's right. Cause that's where Kafka gets confusing. Cause there's Kafka and there's Kafka streams and Kafka streams is an API to work with Kafka. Right. Right. So I, Hey, because we just had this conversation here, I thought it was worth adding this other data storage type on here and that's queues, right? So Kafka is a queue. It's not a database or anything. And RabbitMQ is another one that goes into that. Uh, it's also just a queue. There is a big difference between the two. RabbitMQ is a true traditional type queue where something goes in and gets popped off and, and then it's gone. Kafka is more of a continual transaction log that you can purge these things off over time and hyper scalable can handle, you know, trillions of writes depending on the setup. Um, but yeah, I, I totally that the website that I went to DB engine failed me. They didn't have queues on there. So, um, yeah, these fall in there and another really important type of storage mechanism to know about because they come in handy for different use cases. So yeah, I just looked up uh, what the difference was between uh, arrow and parquet, like what the differentiator was. So parquet is uh, encoded and meant for long-term storage on disk and files. And it's great for, you know, querying column or stuff too. But a big part of that is how it's encoded for writing and for long-term storage. Arrow is optimized for in-memory columnar oh. operations. So you take a hit on like the storage because it's not laid out for that very well, but it's much faster for like reading and performing operations. So if you can do stuff in memory, it seems like a really good format. So that seems really interesting. I think uh, I'll have to kind of chew on that a little bit. So smaller, yeah. so, so smaller amounts of data then in comparison, I would well, think that, or if you're willing to pay more for storage, uh, I mean, here's one thing to know about these three file formats is they basically grew out of the need for HDFS, which is the Hadoop file system, because a lot of times, I mean, if you think about it like this, we said that relational databases, there's there's a falling over point where they just don't scale well, right? They don't, uh, the performance will fall over after you hit something. Well, HDFS is dirt cheap because you can store files out there forever for almost nothing, but... If you want a place to where you can put your data that you can do mining on later, you typically put it in one of these file formats because Hadoop has all kinds of tools to where you can query these files like their databases 
and do all kinds of mining and stuff. I mean, Outlaw and, and Joe did the video a while back of Apache Drill where they, where they were doing this stuff, right? Like it's almost like magic. But at any rate, yes. So that is another thing. If you're dealing with long-term storage and you want to be able to go mine data that you have from historical stuff, those are great formats for that kind of thing. I mean, tools like Drill and Presto, though, they're just – it's amazing that they work. And, right. and that they work as well as they do because you can have like two different technologies and you can query them with one thing and it'll just like, you know, combine those results. Like join them like a database. How's that even work, man? Like yeah, you're going to, you're going to query a CSV file and a parquet file in a Postgres SQL database to make this, to get this query result. And somehow it's like, it just is magic. It's totally amazing. And then if you mix it in with the thing that you said from Uber, the hoodie stuff, then it's like a whole nother layer of magic, right? Like, wait, I got data updating in these flat files, sort of real time-ish. <laughs> I don't what know in the world. I, I don't know if we've linked to this before, um, but we're about to, because <laughs> Uber has some amazing, uh, you know, stuff in their blog. Oh, that man. If you've never followed the Uber blog, engineering blog, there's just some fantastic, awesome articles in there about some of the things that they've done, like from machine learning to data storage, data, just architecting like how they were going to do in, in like long-term plans. And like, if you follow some of these articles, you could, you could go back in time and then see like how they would say like, here's what we're doing today, but here's our long-term plan for how we're going to get to there. And the things that they were doing to contribute back to, um, you know, in in back to the community in the way of open source. You know, what's so funny about that outlaw. So um, I, I basically hate social media, right? Uh, because I feel like you can't really say much out there with without getting in a fight. But the irony here is I saw somebody the other day. I don't know what the, the thing was about why this guy was basically attacking Uber, but basically said that they're not a tech company. They're a transportation company. And, and I, I looked at that and I was like, I want to reply so bad because Uber is only as good as they are because of all the technology things that they have created and invested in, right? Like, I, I mean, their entire business is built around being able to track somebody. Like, would you be happy if you ordered an Uber and it didn't show up on your phone showing that, hey, he's three minutes away, he's two minutes away, he's driving down the road right now? No, you wouldn't be happy. They are absolutely a technology company and their core business that is driven by that technology is transportation. Right. But, but yeah, it's just one of those things that shocks me that if you don't know, if you've never looked at their engineering blog, if you don't realize how much data they have to crunch every day, it's easy to say, Oh no, they just, it's just people driving around. That's all it is. I mean, some of the articles though are so great because like you look at their architecture and the thought that they've put behind it because they were saying like, okay, some of our data needs to be, you know, going back to our, going back to the start of this episode, we were talking about like knowing your use case, right. And the language and, you know, or uh, the storage technology that you need to use. And like some of their articles, they're, they're talking about like, okay, we need some data that's written that needs to be 
uh, queryable for machine learning purposes, some of it that needs to be used for marketing purposes, some of it that needs to be used for this other developer purpose. Here's it. Here it is for applications, blah, 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 all the different use cases and everything. And like how they were, uh, you know, the, the different challenges that they have with that, but also trying to keep like a centralized, like, you know, a master record of the doc of the, of that data. Right. Oh, it's impressive. Yeah, it, it, it really theirs is. is juicy. I, I forget at the time when they wrote some of these articles, they they were processing over twenty petabytes a day, right? Well, petabytes, and I'm sure two thousand two thousand eighteen, it was hundred plus petabytes. So yeah, I mean they're just growing like crazy, man. So yeah, it, it's it's cool stuff. So at any rate, they're a great example of know the storage technologies you need to make some of the decisions you got to do, right? Cause they don't use the same thing for everything, right? They're using Hadoop files for their data lakes. They're using nearline Cassandra stuff for other things. They're using post, like they're using everything, right? Different use cases. So anyway, all right, I'm done with that. All right. Well Actually, then, uh, wait, know, I was going to say, I looked at Uber to see if they were one of the uh, companies that was hiring remotely, uh, neither them or Lyft, are uh, listing remote jobs. Really? Yeah. Man. All right. Sorry. Go ahead, Outlaw. I mean, I, you know, I was just going to ask one last question related to this, you know, water cooler episode, which was be, um, you know, what did the cannibal get when he was late for dinner? Uh, don't Burned? A cold shoulder. Oh, <laughs> thank you again, Klaus. Yes, that's really good. Yeah, Klaus, you're good at this. You're good at this, Klaus. Yeah, he should be like a comedian. Oh, that's good. Um, okay, so uh, yeah, we'll have a bunch of resources to things that we've mentioned in this episode uh, in our the resources we like section. And with that, we head into Alan's favorite portion of the show because Joe doesn't have a favorite. I don't. We've we've tried to establish this before. I have a favorite. Alan has a favorite. Joe's just like whatever. Uh, so Alan's favorite portion of the show, it's the tip of the week. Yeah, and I got guilted into finding two. So <laughs> <laughs> I outlaws like you only have one. I was like, oh man. All right, so my <laughs> go ahead. You, you look. You're gonna say something. No. Okay. So my first one grew out of a need in my Python app of being able to pipe my Google credentials into my Kubernetes pods so that they could authenticate, right? Because the last thing you want to do is be passing around usernames and passwords and all kinds of stuff, you know, when you're trying to authenticate to Google cloud storage or anything, right? So if you use the G cloud tool, I think it's, um, if you download it and you run it, it's like G cloud auth login. If you run that command, it'll prompt you for your username. Then after you, it'll open up a browser. You'll go in, you'll authenticate with your Google credentials. And then it'll basically give you back a token that you need to paste in. And assuming everything matches, it'll store a JSON file on your system. That is your credentials, right? It's got some encrypted stuff in there for it to be able to talk to Google. Which means every time you go to run a GSUtil or a G Cloud command from your local machine, 
you don't have to put in your username and password anymore. It always goes and uses that credentials file. Well, if you have pods that are going to be running some Python or anything else, right? Anything that needs to talk to those Google services, it's kind of a pain if you don't have a way to get those credentials in there and you don't really want to be copying your file into a bunch of pods anyways. There is a plugin if you're using Minikube called GCP Auth. I'll have a link here. And if you run that and you're running Minikube, it will already mount that credential file into pods. So automatically your pod, if you have any programming access or APIs that are calling GCP services, it'll automatically use that credential. This is perfect for local development. So that actually saved me a ton of time. The next you, thing. Well, Hey, can I make a comment? You can. Um, because like y- you mentioned about like, uh, you know, for local development and, and, passing that into your, your pods and everything, but you could also be tempted to like use your, um, to build a, build a Docker container that would use that. You might just like have it in there that you might pass in as like an environment variable. And then you'd set like an args or something like that. But you have to be careful with when you're doing that kind of thing, especially if that's a Docker container that you plan to share, because for example, if you use the args, uh, Docker command in your Docker file, you're actually going to persist those credentials in that res- the resulting Docker image right. there. So, like, you you really want to again know your use case, right? Like, right. you know what you're trying to do. So, yeah, definitely. Uh, anytime you're dealing with credentials, you want to find the best possible way to not be passing it around everywhere, right? And so this makes it a whole lot easier. Um, and then this one, this is a tip from Micro G. It was in the uh, the Slack channel, tips and uh, tips and something. Uh, if you're not part of the Slack community, you really should be because we've got some amazing people in there. Tips and tools. Tips and tools. If you go to codingblocks.net slash Slack, you can auto sign yourself up and get into the channel. We have a few people in there. Uh, Micro G just happens to be one of the awesome ones, and he's got a search engine for Calvin and Hobbes. So that's my other tip. It maybe will put a smile on your face. So if you click that and go to it, then you can find some good funnies. So, yeah. All right, and mine is going to be that uh, report. I actually referenced this earlier. Um, Datadog uh, they publish reports every once in a while about uh, various things. Uh, we talked about the serverless one, I think, a, a while back. Uh, they just uh, updated one of their articles. Uh, with data from 2020. Uh, and it's includes some really good stats and some visualizations. And of course links uh, back to, to more detailed data. But, um, did you know that Kubernetes runs in half of container environments? That's awesome. So yeah. that took me a minute to kind of parse, but the, there are some services like I kind of forgot about now that just run a container. So you could throw like a container at the Azure container service, for example. It's not Kubernetes, but it runs, you know, that or maybe there's, um, you know, Docker Swarm still around Mesos or, you know, whatever else would be used to run your containers. Um, but yeah, Kubernetes is in half. And if you look at the graph, it's going up. That's cool. Um, it's a couple other points I wanted to just wanted to hear just because they're cool. Um, this one was one of my favorites. A majority of Kubernetes workloads are under utilizing CPU and memory. So Kubernetes, you can set a request. And a limit. The limit will 
uh, you know, prevent you from going over. Request, though, kind of allocates stuff and says, like, hey, hold, hold on to this for me because I'm going to need it. 49% of containers use less than 30% of the requested CPU. So that's money that you're paying, holding on, reserving, and not using. 45% of containers use less than 30% of the requested memory. So we're over, over visioning it as kind of as an, as an industry here. So I thought it was really interesting. And, uh, if you go check out this report, there's, there's other stuff there. They highlight like 11 big items. I just read two of those there that I just thought were really interesting. Um, so that's really good. And it's, you know, food for thought if you're dealing with uh, these environments. So similar so to how we would over provision, uh, on-prem hardware, we're over provisioning our, uh, you know, pods. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And so here's the cool part about what you're saying there, though, is for anybody that doesn't understand how this works, when you are requesting your pod, you can tell it the resources you want, right? Like the RAM and the CPU. If you are underutilizing that by a lot, then that means that other pods can't be scheduled on that same node. And a node is a virtual machine you're paying for that has a certain amount of resources. So basically you're overpaying for the VMs that your cluster uses that you could be, you might even be able to cut down your, based off what they're saying right here, you could cut down the number of nodes you have potentially by a third, right? 49%. Yeah, it's a little fishy, but yeah, somewhere, call 50%. A couple of thoughts there. Uh, One is that a node, it could be virtual, but it could also likely just be a physical machine. Yeah, depending totally. on. I, I guess I'm talking about in the uh, in the cloud world, right? Well, even in the cloud world, though, you could have like dedicated hardware. Oh yeah, they might very well. Yeah. I doubt it, but they might. Um, and so so then the other thought though that that came to mind is that I wonder if because there's a there, correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought it was like a, considered a best practice to set the request and the limit to the same because of problems with, um. Uh, what's it called? Oh, dynamic allocation well, where it's having to size up and down all because, the time. Cause the problem that you run into is like, let's say, let's say that you say, Hey, I'm going to request, um, uh, 10, 10 gigs of Ram, but it could burst up to a hundred gigs. So the limit would be a hundred gigs. And then you get enough pods scheduled on that to where like, what if they were to all, you know, l- try to reach their limits at the same time. Like you would get into these weird errors that you're like, suddenly a pod failed and you don't know why it failed. And the reason, but you later determined that the reason it failed is because it tried to allocate memory that it couldn't, even though it was scheduled on a node that it should have, but because they all tried to schedule, tried to, you know, they all bursted at the same time, say, then you get this problem. Whereas if you set your request and your limit to be the same, then you're guaranteed that your pod is going to have what it needs. And anything that is on that node is also going to be guaranteed to have what it needs. And so you you don't run into that burst problem. Hmm. So over provision for what your needs are at the peak and then just deal with the fact that it's never running at peak. Well, I mean, I, yeah, I still try to like, provision it i guess right but yeah it, 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 i mean the thing is the thing is the takeaway from this is that data dog is awesome right because i agree because this goes to show like how many times do we harp on this while going through the the devops handbook right observability metrics right like that kind of thing matters 
you wouldn't know this had Datadog, like this is literally their bread and butter, right? And, and providing you with these kind of stats, providing you these types of visualizations and just having that kind of data is, you know, that that is what they know how to do and they're amazing at it. And, you know, because of those metrics and that capability, then you're able to see like, oh, hey, we're using... Uh, you know, less than 30% of what we requested. Maybe we scale it back. We, we, you know, we scale back our pods to use like 50% of what we're currently using. And that way we still have a little overhead for when we do need to burst, but not as much. Right. And maybe we just have more pods instead, you know, or, or, you know, we, we, we uh, have more horizontal scaling uh, rather than trying to, you know, vertically scale. Which did you know that there are like horizontal horizontal, Vertically scalable pods. I don't think I've ever pods. messed with that. No. It's, it, I, I was reading about it. It's weird. It, like it get <laughs> things go plaid. Um. Anyway, I was so, so, we'll sidebar that. But um, I did want to comment too. Okay, going back to Minikube, like if you've never used Minikube, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you one reason why you should right now. And you can be like, oh, that's such a great reason. I should definitely do it. They have uh, the uh, emojis right there. Like when you start it up, you see like all the great little emojis. Like, "Ah, yeah, it's a little bit of happiness right there in your life. I I will tell you, I will warn you, if you decide, hey, I want to check out this Minikube thing. And you're one of those people that has Docker desktop running. And you decided to provision the heck out of Docker because you're going to run all the things in Docker. Just know Docker is running in a VM. If you said... I have a laptop with 32 gigs of RAM. I'm going to give 24 gigs of that to Docker and I'm going to give it half of my CPUs. That's taken. <laughs> so when you go to start up Minikube, it also creates a VM. So you can't try and provision another 24 gigs of RAM and half your CPUs to that because they're taken. So typically when I'm running Minikube, I shut down Docker desktop. But that's okay because Minikube allows you to act like a Docker daemon or daemon as well. And you can run all the same Docker commands and everything will work the same as Docker in Minikube. So just be aware of that. Asterisk. Asterisk. Okay. What about? Because, uh, because correct me if I'm wrong, but on Windows though, that's not necessarily the case if you're using um, WSL2. Because it will use Hyper-V, right? That still creates a, I believe with Hyper-V, it's still creating you a virtual machine behind the scenes that has those resources. I thought so the point going, was that it wasn't going to like, like immediately consume and reserve them all. It would just like use them as needed. Oh, that I don't with Hyper-V. Know. Like that I was the big advantage of Hyper-V yeah. over the, the previous implementation. Yeah, I, I have no clue. I know it does create a VM behind the scenes because you can open up Hyper-V Manager and go look at it. And I think it, I mean, at least in the past it did, but I haven't done the WSL2 route. So maybe it's not. Well, somebody can write in and correct me on that as well as my inline YAML comment that turned out to be <laughs> that totally doable. All right, let's do it. Uh, all right. So with that, um, you know, it's time for my tip of the week. And I got, I got to tell you, um, you know, I was curious, so I ordered uh, from on eBay both a chicken and an egg, and uh, we're gonna see which one comes in first. Which one comes first? That's a gift from Klaus. Like, it's so hilarious. Where does he come up with this stuff? I don't know. 
but he's, uh, he, he shares it with us and we're fortunate enough to, you know, have him share that with us. So, um, I, my, for my tip of the week, I have a fairly newish to you article, um, from, from last summer, uh, for tips and tricks for running Strimzy with kubectl. So if you're using Kafka in your Kubernetes environment and you're using the Strimzy operator for that, then uh, they've got like a little uh, short, it's very short, uh, you know, set of, um, you know, tips and tricks for it. And, and the thing that, um, that caught my attention first that I was like, Oh man, I never want to forget this thing was that it had a table of all the shortcuts in the long names for what, and what those resources belong to. So if you wanted to do like a, let's say you already have kube cuddle alias is K and you wanted to say, uh, K get Kafka connect. You could just say K get KC instead, but then you're like, well, wait, what if I want to get a connector instead of Kafka connect? Then it's like K get K C T R. Right. Um, so I, I loved those, but there were also like other little tricks that they had in there, uh, as well for dealing with it. Um, obviously, you know, again, for the Strimzy operator, but yes, yeah, so I'll include that link. That's most excellent. And Strimzy for those not in the know is running Kafka as an operator in Kubernetes. So, and maybe one day I'll be able to talk to these guys into doing a deep dive on Kubernetes, but so far I'm losing that battle or Kafka. Yeah, instead they want to like, you know, we do a whole episode on virtual environments and I think <laughs> you're welcome. Next episode, let's spend a good 2 hours talking talking about um what is it? Um uh event time, processing time, clock time, oh God. windowing <laughs> sessions and uh, all the all the fun stuff that uh, you get in streaming systems. Like let's do it. That's actually not a terrible topic. I don't Hold know on, let me draw. Gonna... Let me get a picture here. Right, that's what I was going to say. Right there is the problem. <laughs> you have to yeah. virtually draw a picture in your mind. Wait, like, no, I'm no, no. So I'm good explain. at describing these images. Are you kidding? <laughs> yeah, imagine a ski slope. This is called skew. And <laughs> all right. Well, uh, so we hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, if you haven't already. Uh, if you like, maybe a friend gave you a link to an episode or you're listening to it on their device, uh, you can subscribe to us on whatever platform you choose to find your podcast, iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher are the big ones. But you know, if you find a platform that we are not on, that is your favorite, uh, let us know and we will correct that. And, uh, Hey, if you want to leave us a review, cause, uh, you know, as Joe mentioned, we, we really do appreciate those. They always put a smile on our face. Uh, you know, you can find some helpful links at www.codingblocks.net slash review. Hey, and what episode is this? This is 153. One, I thought we just did 155. No, according to math, we did 152 beforehand. Uh, but okay. let me confer with the math of a chicken. <laughs> What's I've, that done you? In, I've done some things. You know, okay, so. so it might be. We might have done 155 and then came back to do 153. I don't know. Okay, so, Surprises so, in store. All right, so we're, we're on 153. So what I was going to say here is if you head to codingblocks.net slash episode 153, no spaces, no underscores, none of that garbage. Like Joe said, keep it simple. Um, you can find the amazing show notes, all the links and stuff that you should not click at work. They'll be in here. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> So definitely go check that out. And hey, 
if you have any questions or rants or any of that kind of stuff, uh, send them to Slack. Uh, go to codingblocks.net slash Slack and, and join up there. And at and Joe with all of your complaints. Don't it's not even Joe. Well, I don't even know what his is anymore. His has changed so many times. <laughs> That's right. The, there's a reason camouflage <laughs> hiding in plain sight. Uh, make sure to follow us on Twitter at CodingBlocks uh, or TikTok or head over to CodingBlocks.net and find all the social links at the top of the page. Uh, we don't actually have a TikTok. We should, probably, we should grab it. Should grab uh, I'm not putting TikTok on anything, man. No, we just need to squat on the name. Spies. Oh, we yeah. do need to We're at war. Today. I'm going to let yeah, Joe do that. Joe, that's yeah. your to-do item. All right, TikTok. Here it comes. <laughs> you can uh, install it, get all the spyware that comes with it, and uh, let us know. That's right. That's right. <laughs>